Connection Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hello, readers, and happy Thanksgiving to all of my listeners in the U.S. Today, I'm sharing an interview with Vicki Masters, who writes as VEH Masters. She was born and grew up on a farm just outside St. Andrews, Scotland. She's been fascinated by the 1546 siege of St. Andrews Castle ever since her history teacher took the class on a visit, which included going down the siege tunnel dug out of rock and peering into the bottle dungeon where the infamous Cardinal Beaton's body is said to have been kept pickled in salt for over a year. When she learned that the group who took the castle and held it for over 14 months, resisting the many attempts to retake it, called themselves the Castilians, she knew even then at age 12 that it was the perfect title for the story, and she had a sixth sense that she might write it one day. So today, Vicki and I talk about how she came to write that story, and her next book, The Conversos, which is actually out already. It was originally planned to be released on the 30th of November, which is also St. Andrew's Day in Scotland. But um, it came out a little early, as happens with um, indie published books. And um, it's available now. So without further ado, let me get to my wonderful conversation with VEH Masters. Vicki, I'm so glad you could join me on the show today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. I want to talk about both of your books. Your second novel is is releasing soon, but I want to start with your debut, The Castilians, which released last year. Um, Can you tell me about this book? Absolutely. Uh, The Castilians tells the story of the siege of St Andrew's Castle in Scotland uh, in 1546. And it tells it through the eyes of a sister and brother who are caught up in the siege. So Will, the brother, is with the besiegers inside the castle and they want religious reform. But they're also running wild in the town. And Bethia, the sister, is in the town outside trying to get her brother to come out since their family may well lose everything because of his treasonous activities. And she's also being forced into a really unwelcome marriage um, to try and save the family fortune. And the backdrop is Henry VIII of England is absolutely determined to force a marriage between Mary, Queen of Scots, who's only three years old, and his son, Prince Edward. And what the Castilians are doing is really at his prompting in many ways. So he's trying to bludgeon Scotland into submission. So Mm. that's it it in a nutshell. Wow. So... What inspired you to write this novel? You told me a little bit about this ahead of time, but I want to hear you tell my listeners. Um, I went to school in St. Andrews, which is where the castle is. And St. Andrews is um, it's very well known as the home of golf, if there's anybody out there that are golfers. But it's also got a fairly major history. And we really weren't taught very much about that history in school. And so we knew a little bit about the siege, but not that much. And it's really very exciting. So I was sort of drawn to it when our history teacher, and I was 12 before I was ever in the castle, and that's living and growing up uh, near the town, 
um, we, we went there and we went down the mine, which is the tunnel that was dug in 1546. So mm. we could go down it. It's really exciting. I still love it. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. So then at that point, you you decided that you wanted to write a novel about it? Yeah, it was sort of when I heard that they called themselves the Castilians. I remember mm-hmm. even then this kind of thrill um, and thinking, oh, wow, what a great name for a novel. Um, yes. But it's taken me many, many, many years to actually write it. Mm-hmm. So was the castle itself, it was St. Andrew's Castle. Um and yeah. why was it why was it named that? Just because of um, the region or Yes, the, the name of the town is St Andrews. Okay. So St Andrews has a castle and now derelict, a cathedral, um and a university, as well as lots of golf courses. Um so it's it's quite a an interesting town to have grown up in. It's absolutely full of history. But we just right. lived there. We didn't really when I think on it, that I was never in the castle till I was 12, I find it quite stunning. But we just didn't go. I wasn't in the cathedral grounds until I started wandering there at lunchtime with my friends in secondary school mm-hmm. and high school. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we are, it's like we weren't, we weren't really told our stories. Um, and most of the history I was taught throughout school was English history, not Scottish history. So Scotland, you know, was kind of a little bit battered and beaten, I think. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Now, do you still live um, close enough to visit there now? Uh, yes. Um, I moved, actually, just around the time I published this novel. But I had lived within... Um, 10 miles of St Andrews for virtually all my life. Oh. Um, I live about just about an hour and a half away. So it's not very far still. Right. And um, of course, lockdown made it difficult to go back and forward. But, yes. you know, I still love to go there. Uh, it's still one of my favorite places in the world um, to be. Right. That's neat. Now, your second novel, The Conversos, is releasing November 30th. Can you tell me about that book? Well, it picks up almost to the hour from where the Castilians left off. Um, so what, what has happened is the, the castle um, was uh, taken eventually. The French had to come and attack from the sea. So the, the siege ran for 14 months. And Will, at the end, is captured and he becomes a galley slave to the French, which is what happened to uh, the people that were captured. And Bethia also has had to flee. uh, And she has gone with a young pilgrim that she's met to Antwerp. So the book continues with what happens to Will as a galley slave and what happens to Bethia living in Antwerp. So that was just inspired as you were writing the Castilians, you wanted to continue the story, of course, right? Yes. I mean, I was actually going to jump um, 20 years ahead, about 30 oh. years ahead, to something else that happened in near St. Andrews that also really drew my attention. 
But a number of people said to me, we can't leave it there. We have to know what happens next. So I've just, it, I'm just doing the final edits now. And so the book will be out, hopefully. Well, it will be out definitely next month. Um, I was going to bring it out on St. Andrew's Day, which is the 30th of November. Oh, yes. I might have it out earlier. And um, I'm already planning the third and the fourth book um, because there's there's lots more to tell. There's lots oh, more stories to, to tell. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, no- November 30th is St. Andrew's Day in Scotland. What do Scots do to celebrate this day? Well, they didn't. we didn't used to really do very much at all. Um, but now there are, um, St. Andrew's, of course, is named after St. Andrew, you know, one of um, the disciples. Yes. Um, and um, so there, there are now celebrations, and, and that is, and St. Andrew, St. Andrew is also the patron saint of Scotland. So we have celebrations now within Scotland. So in St. Andrew's, the town itself, um, before COVID, they would have a street party and they'd have some Scottish country dancing. So there was a mm-hmm. there was more activity, but as a child, there was nothing. I mean, it was not Burns's day is, was the big day, and that's February. Um, you know, the poet Robert Burns. That was right, the, right. We were, that was a big deal, but not really St Andrew's Day. But since the Scottish Nationalists came to power, a lot more of Scottish history and um, just celebrations around Scottishness happens. And I say that without any political reference at all. <laughs> right, right. Politics are a private matter, so <laughs> I'm not trying to be political here. I'm just explaining what's happened. Um, yes. The Scottish Nationalist Party came to power in Scotland. Mm-hmm. So since then, the um, St. Andrew's Day has been more celebrated? Yes. And, and because he's, sorry. he's the patron. I'm sorry. I'm just clarifying for the U.S. listeners um, who might not know that he's the patron saint of Scotland, correct? Yes. Yes. And St. Andrews itself as a city prior to the Reformation was a big center of pilgrimage. So okay. people come from overseas, including from Russia, because St. Andrew, I think, is, was also a patron saint in Russia, but they would yes, come from Europe and Russia and do a, a pilgrimage to St. Andrews itself prior to the oh, Reformation. That's so interesting. Um, we weren't told any of that in school. <laughs> we just discovered it laterally. Um, yeah, that's interesting because, um, well, especially because, like, I don't think St. Andrew when I was reading about a little bit about it, he'd never, as far as they know, he never went to Scotland, but the pilgrimage is to the city that was named after him. So, Well, what, what happened um, with the bones of the saints, um, they were taken to places. Yes. So it was claimed, whether it was true or not, that some of St. An- Andrew's bones were brought to Scotland somewhere around the 11th century. And were were kept in a you know a, a reliquary a casket in the cathedral, mm-hmm. so people were coming there, and that was that was very common and still is, yes, uh, across Europe. Um, but when it was a Catholic country, 
people came on, on pilgrimage to right. because the bones were there because it was a very holy place. Yeah. Okay. I see. I'm sorry. I didn't read enough about St. Andrew <laughs> being the patron saint to, to discover that was the, the reason for the name of the city. Yeah. And that's not in the book um, particularly. Right. Because people just live with it. That's their experience. Of course, we've got the bones of St. Andrew here. Right. Yeah. Prior to the Reformation, this is the beginnings of the Reformation. So the yes. people who the castle are there fighting for the beginnings of the Protestant cause. Mm-hmm. So what, what was your hope in writing these novels and the ones that are to come? What are you hoping people will take away from them? Um, I think I, I really wanted to give a sense of what life would be like then and how challenging it was and how precarious it was and mm-hmm. often how very smelly it was. I mean, the castle is thinking by the end of 14 months. Um, yes. you know, it wasn't a very clean environment at all uh, for anybody. So I wanted that sense. And I also, I often feel in books um, that people's beliefs are kind of sidelined to often to the intrigues of the politics, which of course was happening. But the, the core beliefs were incredibly important. Um, and so yes. I, I wanted to give that sense. So you've got Will, who who is has got strong beliefs in the reform in the needs of reform, the reform of the church. But I've, I've also got Bethia on the other side, um, going, why do men, you know, why why are they making such a fuss about this? Life is mm. hard enough anyway. We just have to get our heads down and hope that nobody's going to come and chop them off because it, it starts with the burning. The book begins, and, and it's not a gruesome book, but this is what happened. It began with the burning of a young preacher because mm-hmm. of his um, challenges to the church. Yes. And, and then the people that invade the castle murder the cardinal um, who had him burned. You know, he lives in the castle. They, they come in, they murder him, and they keep his body pickled in salt in mm. is the bottle dungeon that you can still go in and look down in and think mm-hmm. about his body pickled there. So it's all, I wanted that sense of how tough life was. And that continues in Antwerp, you know, where Bethia is in the second book. Um, yes. The Inquisition is coming. And you have uh, people that have converted to Christianity and they're, they're not believed and they're not trusted. So it's precarious wherever you are and whatever your belief system, because one moment it's Catholic, the next moment it's Protestant, the next moment it's back to Catholic again, and and the terror of it all. Um, and I, I, yes, and it fascinated me. Yes. And there's well, things and- going on in our own world as well. Hmm. Well, you um, you did a very good job conveying what life was like. I think um, I haven't. You probably know from listening to my other podcast that I don't always get to read the whole book, so I haven't read the entire of both. But I've read the beginning of each of them, and I I want to read the rest of them because <laughs> um, I think you just you did such a good job making it 
lifelike and and as it was back then, you know, especially I notice you you point out the smell, the the um the scent of everything <laughs> that they're dealing with. Yeah. Yes, it was it was a short the life expectancy was 40. Right. It's a, it's a short brutal a dangerous life. time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and and all this kind of romancing of you know, women charging about and doing what they wanted and so forth. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it was a remarkable woman. And even then they would have to bend and shift and, you know, maneuver to get anything yes. that they wanted. Yes, sure. So can you tell me, you lived near this castle growing up and um, became fascinated with it. So then when you decided to write the book, um, tell me a little bit about the research you did and and how your writing process worked. Yeah, I it, I wanted to write, you know, like many writers, I wanted to write all my life. And it was really tough for me to even admit that, to, to say it out loud. I want to be a writer. It felt like some terrible, shameful secret that I had. Mm. And... Um, so in the end, I felt like I just have to do this. I don't want to be very, very old and looking back on my life and going, oh, I so wish I'd done it. Um, yeah. So I became uh, very disciplined and I set myself a word, word, word count. I, I've got timers. I'm not supposed to get up until I've done, yes. you know, I've worked for a certain period I have to achieve my word count, which is roughly 1,200 words a day um, before I move on to anything else. And I didn't understand all the things like the editing process. Um, But what is wonderful is there's so many people out there that are willing to help you and speak to you, you know, people Mm -hmm. that are already successful themselves. And so I shamelessly wrote to people and spoke to people and I had somebody mentor me who's a, an award-winning author. Oh, wonderful. Margaret Ski, her name is. Okay. Uh, and she was very generous with her time. And this was my four, the fourth book that I'd had a go at. Mm. So I've written other books before, um, but they just never got to the point. I mean, they're finished, but they're not finished. They need a lot, a lot more work. And right. My understanding is that's quite common. Yes, yes they finally get one that that's good enough to go out there. So yeah, the process has been a bit jumbled, but I'm beginning with the second book. I'm beginning to understand what my process is more, and understand that I I just need to go at it and get the bare bones down, and that I will develop the characters and the plot further as I edit. So I'm doing lots of edits. I'm no Stephen King. Stephen King um, wrote a, a wonderful book about writing. Yes, on writing. Yeah. On writing. And he, I'm not a Stephen King reader normally. I find his books a bit scary. But this yes, book me is too. great. Uh, yeah. And he talks about his writing process. One draft, and then he puts it away for six weeks. Second draft, and he's done. And I know now that is just not my process. You know, first draft. But he does say that first draft is not good. I mean, I won't repeat what he says because I know I'm I'm not supposed to be explicit this show. So, but he calls it, you know, not a very good draft. 
Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, but he then says he only takes he only needs two drafts. Or did I misunderstand that? I don't know. I don't remember that. I re- well, I just remember be- thinking he only needs a second edit, and then he's done. I have Um, so many, so many drafts of. Well, yes. I mean, I think about 14 edits is probably Mm -hmm. more like it. And even after. I usually lose count. Yeah. Even after I've done things like read it out loud. And I think, Mm -hmm. right, it must be okay now. And then I'll send it off to somebody and they come back and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I missed this (laughs) and I missed that. And yeah. So I'm learning my processes get it down and just accept that you're going to have to edit and edit and edit and edit. Yeah. But I think what I, I would like to learn to do is to run two books at once. So I get one down, I put it to one side, I start the next one. And, I, and so I'm moving back and forward between them. Uh, I don't know how to do that either. I, I may be being over ambitious, but <laughs> this is my, my plan now, I'll see, with two whole books under my belt. We'll see how we do. Yeah, well, and I'm curious, you said you would set a word count of 1,200 words a day, right? Yeah. Um, and so do you have, or did you have another job when you started writing this, or is that your sole focus? It's my sole focus now. Um, oh, that's good. I when I started it, I was working full-time. Okay. Um, I used to um, work in the evenings and at weekends um, mm-hmm. because it, I had a long commute. So I, to work in the mornings, I had to leave the house at seven. So it just was too much to right. try. Um, I do do work better work first thing in the morning, but no. Now I'm able. I'm fortunate enough to be able to focus on the writing, which is another reason I think I should be able to do it faster than I'm doing it. I, yeah, I understand though. It's, even if it's the only thing you have to do, it's not really the only thing you have to do because there's everything from the house calling to you. Well, yes. Logically, you think that you should be able to produce more, but I think that you need the right incentive sometimes. Yes. Yeah. I. But getting that first draft down is, for me, is just a slog. Yes. And, and you, you, it is a, you will sit here. And you've mm-hmm. been messing around, and, and I'll sit there for, and I'll write about ten words, and I'll think, I'll oh, just check my emails, yes. <laughs> and then I'm thinking, no, you've messed around all morning, and right. if you sit here till six or seven o'clock at night, you're going to have to sit here, and you should have just got <laughs> on with it. It's like this little <laughs> voice, <laughs> the the not, I'm on the naughty. Oh, they don't have naughty steps anymore. Whatever it is, I'm, I'm you know, you will sit, you will sit in that seat until it's done. Yes, it's good to hear other writers are in the same boat because I I struggle the same way. I'm glad I'm not the only one. It really is. So when you said you wrote a few books before The Castilians, and then once you embarked on writing The the Castilians, what was the path to publication from that point? Um, I've been in these these amazing groups, you know, where they're doing, what is it, sprints to try and... um, uh, get letters ready for publishers and uh, um, not publishers. Uh, What's it called? What it Agents. Called? Agents. Thank you. Yes. Um, and uh, and I thought about and I tried it a bit before with a couple of things that I'd written before. And this time, I went to a few talks, 
some of them organized by Amazon, where they were bringing out their incredibly successful self-published authors. And I thought, I am not even going to try and find an agent or a publisher. And, and it's a very Scottish, the first one is very Scottish specific. And I kind yes. of thought that I would need an agent and a publisher in Scotland. And mm-hmm. there are not that many of them. And I, I thought, I'm not wasting time on it. Because even if you get picked up by an agent, your chances of then getting a publisher are still <laughs> very, very low. Um, and then even if a, even if the agent finds the publisher, I've seen it with with other friends. The publisher says they're going to take the book and then they hesitate and then they send it out to some more people and then they change their mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could waste another two years, three years messing around with right. that. So I'm not going to do it. Uh, I decided I would go for self-publishing. And that's when I contacted Margaret, who had – who was a successful and award-winning traditionally published writer who'd then gone self-published, her publisher had gone bust. And I thought mm-hmm. she was both ways. She's good. And she gave me, and I said to her, I just want you to tell me how to, to publish, how to self-publish. And she said, hmm, send me your book first. So I sent her the book and nine months later it was ready for publishing because <laughs> she said, no, no, no. I, this is promising, but it's not ready to go. So um, even then, when I thought it was ready to go, it wasn't. And yes. I've looked at a lot of uh, self-published authors, and some of them are, you know, there's lots out there like yes. me, that are doing, you know, sort of okay. But some, when they get to their, they've got a lot of books in a series, they are doing really well. And then mm-hmm. some oh, they yeah. get picked up by Amazon. But yes. um, you can see others could have been picked up by Amazon and they thought, you know, Lakeland Publishing, I think it's called, they thought, why would I do that? I'm making loads Mm -hmm. of money doing it myself. I don't, I don't need to. And they're getting released by agents now going, oh, I'll be your agent. And they're going, no, I don't need you. (laughs) Um, And even if you are published, you've still got to promote yourself. Right. Unless you're somebody that's already famous. So yes. I, I, I decided right from the get-go with this book that I was going to self-publish it. Yes, I understand that, especially the, I mean, I think that it would be interesting for lots and lots of people, but um, it, I can see how it would be harder to get an agent interested in a book like this if they aren't from Scotland or they don't know much about St. Andrews. Yeah, but I do have actually quite a lot of readers in North America and Australia because mm, good. of the diaspora. So you've got all these people who've, who've got ancestors in Scotland or yes. visited Scotland or um, they've been to St Andrews itself. So, mm, so it, it has had much wider appeal than it initially I thought it might have. That's great. That's wonderful. Yeah. So that's been good. Yes. So can you tell us a little bit about what's to come in the next books? Just a teaser, not too much. <laughs> um, the, the Conversos will continue on um, across Europe. So part of it will be in Geneva. Ultimately, they're going to end up, or some of them are going to end up in um, Salonika in Greece. Um, for reasons which will become evident. 
And then mm-hmm. the, the fourth book that I'm thinking about, which is much further ahead, is based on a story that um, I've picked up that happened in a small fishing village where my daughter-in-law actually comes from, uh, which is very near St Andrews. So oh. we tell a pretty amazing true story, which, again, I'm absolutely stunned that I never heard about in school, and she's never heard of either when I was relaying it to her um, yesterday. So I'm, quite, I'm not oh. going to say any more about that because I'm actually, I'm actually quite scared somebody will find out about it because it's such a great story to tell a book about uh, for a book. Um, oh. so, <laughs> so, yes, there's lots and lots of tales out there. Um, right. That's yeah. exciting. So this is a question I ask all my guests. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? Well, at its most basic level, living in the countries that we live in, and I, I talk about, I'm talking about the United States and um, Great Britain, just to really appreciate what we've caught in the here and now, um, because life was really so much harder. Mm-hmm. And riskier and you didn't know when you were going to be turned on so just the whole legal system for all that it can be flawed at times and the protection that we have here um, is for me quite it's quite amazing actually to see where Scotland was in 1546 and where it is in 2021 mm-hmm. it's quite remarkable um, what happens over these centuries and yet also that there was great understanding then and people who were trying to do right by the world uh, mm-hmm. you know, first like Erasmus talking about you know if we just treat people kindly then then that will spread so yeah. I, I think that's maybe at the bottom of anything I write because it's a philosophy that I live by which is kindness is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Being kind to ourselves and being kind to one another. So Vicki, this has been a wonderful conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? Um, I'm on Facebook. I have a website. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. But yes, no, I join my a readers group uh, on the website. You'll get lots of updates and little Mm. stories and more background information about the research I'm doing. Great. So thank you so much for being with us today, Vicki. Well, thank you for having me. It was really great to speak to you. Well, my friends, I hope you enjoyed listening to me talk with Vicki Masters. Not only is the content fascinating, I mean, she was wonderful to talk with, but also I'm just loving some of these different accents that we've had on the um on the, on the show lately between Adrian Goldsworthy a few weeks ago, who is from the UK and Vicky Masters, beautiful Scottish accent. But truly, it's good to hear all the information that I really, um, this was such a unique period in history that we haven't had other authors talk about. So my dear listeners, if you are enjoying Historical Fiction Unpacked, I would urge you to subscribe so that you receive it every day, every day, every week when it releases, and also um, to go and leave a rating and review in whatever app you use to listen to the podcast. Um, 
It really just takes a few minutes of your time. It doesn't cost anything else, and it helps bring more listeners to Historical Fiction Unpacked. Also, friends, if you are on Facebook, please feel free to join the Facebook group on there. It's called Historical Fiction Unpacked Podcast Group, so you can just search it on Facebook, or you can get to it from the show notes. And please do check out the show notes every week. I always include links to the books that we discuss. This week, I'll be including links to Vicky's books and also to On Writing by Stephen King. So you can check out that book because it's really a wonderful book about writing if you're interested in writing at all. So the show notes, if they're not in your podcatcher app, they can always be found at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. And friends, if you are willing to go above and beyond and become part of my community on Patreon, I would be forever in your debt. Um, But you can check that out and find out if there is a tier that would be right for you. I have people who support me at the $3 a month tier, um, which is just, I'll mention your name on the podcast if you want me to. And that just kind of helps keep the lights on here. But the higher tiers include things like every month I send out a video review of books that I'm reading and typically include books that we talk about on the podcast. Also, if you join at a higher level, there is a level at which I will send you a book every month. So it can be any of the books that we discuss on the podcast. And I will send you that book as a thank you for your support. So do check that out at patreon.com slash Allison Treat. Allison has one L. That's enough about that. You guys, if you're still hanging on listening to the end of this podcast, I want to leave you with a quote, as I always do. This one comes from Terry Gilmitz. She said, no volume of history is insignificant, even the worst chapters, especially the worst chapters. So keep reading historical fiction, my friends, and I will talk to you again next week.